Tonight we're, we're, we're continuing through um, our, our series in 1 Corinthians 15, which is entitled New Life. Um, we're, we're looking at what does new life in Christ look like? What are the, the implications, the, the practical outworkings of living uh, in new life um, in Christ? Um, and so tonight um, we're looking at the, the idea of abolishing death. We're looking at what does the what are, what are the, the the things that flow out of the resurrection. So our reading tonight is First Corinthians chapter fifteen, uh, and verses twenty three to twenty eight, uh, and it says this: But each in his own, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterwards, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he puts his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated, the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything, is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight that as we are thinking about the, the resurrection, we thank you that by the power of the Holy Spirit that that same Jesus Christ is alive and present here tonight in his glory and in his power. We pray that as we have spent time giving worship and praise to you that we would already have a sense of your presence here tonight. But we pray now that as we read your word that you would speak to us that you know each of us, you know what our, our needs are, you know what our, our fears, our hopes are, and we pray that you would speak to us tonight, that we would hear you clearly, that we would receive the, the help, the strength, the comfort, the correction, um, the guidance that we need from you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. So, like someone taking a stone and throwing it into, into still water, the effects of the resurrection ripple out in, in waves from the empty tomb. And we've seen as we've gone through this series over the past couple of weeks that the, the resurrection, um, first of all, it affirms the authority of Scripture because the very coming into our worlds by Jesus, the life that he led when he was here, the death that he died and his resurrection, all of these things were foretold by Scripture. And therefore, the, we see the fulfillment of Scripture in who Jesus was, what he did in his sacrifice and in, as I said, his own resurrection. We also, the, the resurrection also shows that it guarantees our salvation because the Bible says that the, the penalty of sin is death. And the Bible says that Christ came in to pay the penalty, to pay the, the, the price for our sin. And therefore, because he himself was sinless, then death itself couldn't actually hold on to him. It had no claim on him. But also the fact that he rose showed that the price that he paid for our sin was, f was 
fully accepted by God the Father, and therefore we can have forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus has done. And then last week, um, Mark um, was showed that the resurrection itself guarantees the resurrection of every believer. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it actually goes beyond that. So last week, Mark was, was preaching on the verses that said that since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And that's what leads us into our, uh, into our verses tonight. But the resurrection doesn't just create spirit, uh, spiritual or theological waves. It creates waves that ripple through the whole of human history. And as we're going to see tonight, the resurrection has implications that affects the whole of creation. And the resurrection has implications that affects the lives of every human being. And when I say every human being, I mean every. Every person, past, person, and future. That's the extent of the power of the resurrection. So Paul continues um, the thought of verse uh, 22 uh, that I just mentioned, that Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So he says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Like, in other words, Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning. It's almost like it's a down payment. It's a deposit of what is going to be fulfilled. So he says, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then afterwards at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so the waves of the resurrection continue to ripple out because then he says, and then comes the end in verse 24. So in actual fact, verses 23 to 28 are a, a very brief summary of the events of what is going to happen when Christ comes back the second time, which will be very different from how he came into our world in the first place. And as I said this morning, we are not going to get into a, the, a theological debate about what happens and when and how long and everything else. We're just going to accept the, the very broad brushstrokes that Paul delivers in these verses. So it says in verse 23 that when Christ comes back, he's coming back for uh, his church. The biggest bulk of the church right now is with God in heaven. But it says that when Christ comes back, he's coming back for those that are still on the earth, those who still are following him, those who are still serving him. So just imagine tonight, instead of the batteries running out and, and, and uh, my microphone, that this service gets completely wiped out because Christ comes back. And we finish this service tonight, not here in Denison Baptist Church, but standing in, in front of the presence of God. I won't object to that. Then it says that when Christ comes back, he says that he will put an end to all the, the powers and dominions, all the authorities that have lived in disobedience to God. But it says he will put all his enemies under his feet. All those powers and authorities, both physical and spiritual, that have been living in disobedience to God. Then it says in verse 26 that death itself, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the physical and spiritual consequence of sin is abolished. And then in a final act of obedience and humility, Christ the Son 
dedicates the kingdom of God that he has purchased with his own blood to God the Father. And the Son gives glory as he did on earth and as he does in heaven. Eternity begins with Christ giving glory to God the Father. And as we look at these things, and as we see God's plan for the second coming, what we need to remember is that God's plan of salvation isn't about us. It's about God. And so the forgiveness of sins, a new relationship with God, the assurance of eternal life, all of these things, important as they are, are only a part, a small part, if I can put it like that, of God's plan of uh, of salvation. God's plan of salvation is not just simply about the forgiveness of sins. God's plan of salvation is about the eradication of, of sin and its effects on all of creation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that creation itself has, is, is groaning, that it's subject to sin because of human disobedience. And so God's plan is that even that that effect of sin and creation will be taken away. And as human beings, and particularly as sinful human beings, we, we just cannot fully understand how much sin is an affront and an offense, an abomination to a holy, sinless God. Mark pointed out last week that the first sin in the Garden of Eden basically said to God that you're not enough, that I want something else other than you. So sin is a rejection of God. Sin is an attempt to make something else or someone else God in God's place. Sin is an attempt to become God. And so, as I said, God's plan, therefore, is not just the forgiveness of sin, but it's complete removal. It's complete erasure. Another one of the Bible writers, one of the New Testament writers, the Apostle John, was given a vision of what would creation look like if there was no more sin? And so in Revelation chapter 21, he writes these words. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had disappeared, and so had the sea. Then I saw the new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down from God in heaven. It was like a bride dressed in her wedding gown, her wedding gown and ready to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice shout from the throne, God's home is now with his people. He will live with them, and they will be his own. Yes, God will make his home among his people. He will wipe all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more suffering, crying, or pain. The things of the past are gone forever. So the Bible opens with a sinless, perfect creation. And God in fellowship and friendship with the people that he's created. Now, at that point, there was only two. But the Bible ends with God and his sinless, perfect creation in fellowship with his people. But this time, the people number in countless millions because of the sacrifice of Christ. That's the vision that's the future hope that we have to look forward to as believers in Christ. That's the future hope that gives us a present hope, that gives us endurance and perseverance, that no matter what the world throws at us and no matter what we go through, 
um, as, as Christians, that we know that our future and our destiny is, is secure and guaranteed because it's guaranteed by the same power of the resurrection that I've spoken about already tonight. But just as we take hope from the future that the resurrection guarantees for those who trust in Christ through the abolition of death and the eradication of sin, that same resurrection causes another wave that is uncomfortable it is, is one that we can't ignore. said to you that in verses 24 and 25, it says that Christ will come and put all of his enemies under his feet as he puts an end to all rule and all power and all authority that lives in disobedience to God. And for that to happen, then that also means that God will bring judgment on those that says in Philippians, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In our words, spiritual powers, human beings alive now and those who have died. So God will bring judgment on all those in heaven and on earth and under the earth who have not willingly bowed the knee and confessed that he is Lord to the glory of God. It's really difficult to deny that God exists. If suddenly God appears in the person of Christ, it says, in glory with the sound of a trumpet accompanied by thousands of angels. It's really difficult to deny that God exists when literally thousands of people will be swept off the earth to meet Christ in the air. But our, that, those two things, this glorious hope that we have in the future goes hand in hand with this warning about judgment and condemnation for those that have not accepted Christ as Savior. And there are countless warnings, as I said in Scripture, about the, the, the consequence of this. And just some examples. There's the parable of the sheep and the goats that talk about how at the end of time the, the, the whole of the human race, past and present, and, out, and from our perspective, the future, will stand before God. Two groups. One who, who spent their life serving Christ and serving people in Jesus' name. And those that rejected him and wanted to have nothing to do with them. And suddenly now they find that when they stand on the, 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 the cusp of eternity, what happens when God says that he wants to have nothing to do with you? To treat you the same way that you've treated God all the way through your life. There's a parable of the, the wheat and the weeds that Jesus told. The, the idea that someone went out and they sowed wheat in a field, but it says that in the middle of the night an enemy came along and planted weeds to try and spoil the, the harvest. And the Bible says that when the workers wanted to try and pull up the weeds, the, the owner of the fields told them not to because they might damage the wheat. And so he said, well, just wait until the harvest comes. We'll, we'll harvest both the wheat and the weeds. The harvest will be gathered up and kept in the storehouse. The weeds will be burnt and destroyed. And Jesus said, that's a picture of what is going to happen. He says that the field is the earth, that the wheat is, the, is those who believe in Christ. The enemy is the devil who wants to undo that work. He says, and the weeds are those who, who will not obey God. And he says, the harvesters are angels. And he says, and at the end of time, 
then there is this separation again between those who have followed Christ here on earth and those who have refused to do so. And Jesus himself gave this warning. He said to, to those who followed him, do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves, notice that again, all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good uh, to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. That's the future for the human race. When we read those verses earlier on that says that, that just as in one through one man all die, so in Christ all live, it literally means all, not just believers, every human being who has ever been. The Bible teaches this uncomfortable truth that the abolition of death means that resurrection is universal, but salvation is not. There are those who have this idea that there's a, a God of the Old Testament and there's a God of the New Testament. One of them is a cruel, angry, vindictive, smitey God um, who is always um, punishing and judging and bringing um, famine and pestilence and all the rest of it on people for their, for their sin and disobedience. But there's this much better, much more acceptable God of the New Testament, this loving, kind, cuddly God, you know, and, and folk have this, this idea that, you know, that when they die, that you know, they'll stand before God and God will smile at them like some benevolent granddad and say, well, you were a bit of a rogue, weren't you? But never mind, all's forgiven, come in now. That's not how it works. There's only one God in Scripture, a God of holiness, uh, a God of justice, and fortunately for us, a God of mercy. I've already said that God is a God of holiness, that sin is an affront and an offense to him, and God's justice flows out of that same holiness because therefore God has to act against sin. It's his nature that where there is where there is evil, where there is cruelty, where there is selfishness, where, where um, there is hurt, that God has to act and deal with that. God has to condemn sin. God has to judge sin. And God has to judge those who commit sin. And to use a human analogy, that's exactly what we would expect from human judges. How often do you read something in the paper about, you know, a about a judge who has given some, someone who's done something really bad, which seems to be a really light sentence. It's almost, you know, we talk about them giving someone a slap in the wrist, you know, and we get angry we, when it seems that um, a, a judgment for, for somebody who's done something wrong seems to be so light that we say that it's almost like they're more concerned about the rights of the guilty than protecting the rights of the victims. And so... Therefore, we criticize judges who don't, see, who don't uphold justice, who don't act as we expect them to do, which is to punish wrongdoing. And so, therefore, who dares to criticize a God of holiness when he judges we guilty sinners for our selfishness, for our disobedience, for our arrogance, for our uh, self-centeredness, 
who dares criticize the Creator for condemning us, all of us, for what we've done to ourselves, what we've done to others, what we have done to God's creation? As I said a moment ago, there isn't two gods, a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. This so-called angry, cruel, and vindictive God of the Old Testament is the same one who says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. So for me, I'm amazed that God created human beings at all in the first place. God created you and me in the full knowledge that we would reject him. In the full knowledge that we would go our own way. God created human beings knowing what it would cost him to pay the price for our sin. All of us, those of us, sorry, who are parents, um, we hope our kids will turn out well. We hope that they will be good, honest people who are loving, kind, considerate, honest. And our parents probably want exactly the same thing for us. And how many parents have raised their children only to be disappointed by how they've turned out? But we have kids not knowing what their future is going to be like. But God knew exactly how we were going to be before he created us. And yet, out of his love, he chose to do that, knowing how much we would hurt him, how much we would grieve him, and knowing what God himself would have to do, as I said, not only to, to make the forgiveness of sins possible, but to make the eradication of sin possible. So no one dares criticize God because he seems to judge some and not others. Instead, we should be given thanks that God chooses to forgive any of us at all. Give thanks that we are actually here to be able to criticize God at all. But this is Denison Baptist Church. I didn't want to use the name this morning, but thankfully this is not Westboro Baptist Church. We are not here to gleefully proclaim judgment on other people, to delight in God's condemnation of other people, like we are somehow better than them. We are not here to give thanks for our own salvation while we delight in the condemnation of others. We are here to respond like the writer of the New Testament who said, I have told you often, and now I say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. The first sermon preached by the, the, the new church uh, has these words. With many other words, Peter, the, the, the one who preached, testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. Church is not a bunker where we are all hiding out, waiting for this world to just come to an end so that we can get on with the good stuff of Christ's return and Christ's rule and reign. Church is not some self-righteous courtroom where we revel in the punishment of others knowing that we are safe. 
Church is a lifeboat station where we volunteer to, to serve wherever we're needed in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, choosing, if need be, to throw aside the safe, comfortable, easy life in order to rescue those who would otherwise be lost to the waves and the storms of sin. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we are called for as long as we are here to love this same world as well. Yes, the Bible says that this is not our home. Yes, the Bible says that we are citizens of heaven. But for as long as we are here, it's our privilege to share in Christ's work to save and to proclaim the, the forgiveness, the good news of forgiveness and the, ability, the, the opportunity to have a new relationship with God, to have an eternity with God instead of an eternity separated from God. So to non-believers, the resurrection offers, as I said, hope to those who don't know Christ. We are not any better than anyone else. Forgiveness is available to everyone, not just, a, not just those who think they're somehow special or more holy or better than other people. Forgiveness and eternal life is given through the goodness and the mercy of God. God continues to offer people the, 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 the choice, the opportunity rather, of a resurrection of life rather than a resurrection of condemnation. And to those of us who believe, resurrection gives us hope because it shows us this glorious, powerful, beautiful, peaceful future that God has planned through the abolition of death, the eradication of sin, and the triumph of Christ. And for us who believe, death is already defeated. It's not some far-off future concept. It's already defeated. We either are here on earth to serve Christ or we are taken to be with Christ. It's as simple as that. There's no in between. That's the hope and the assurance that we have. So therefore, it doesn't matter what the world does. That's the reason why there are Christians throughout history and Christians today who can face the most appalling persecution and can face even death because of their faith in Christ and face it with a supernatural strength and courage and even joy because they know that the earth, that, you know, I love the, the, the song we were singing before in Christ alone. The most powerful words in that song for me is the, is the part that says that no power of hell, no scheme of man can, can ever pluck me from his hand. The world cannot do anything to us to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. The world is powerless to touch us as believers because that's the power of the resurrection. Not just a future hope. It's a power and it's a reality in Christian lives today. But while we are here, we are not to spend this present life just wishing this world away, pining for some world to come while we ignore the world that we live in just now. God has given us the Holy Spirit, who himself, the Bible says, is a deposit, a guarantee of our salvation. It says that the Holy Spirit himself is a, it's a seal of ownership. 
that we are marked as belonging to God, that God has given the Holy Spirit to enable us, to empower us, to equip us to serve him. And earlier on this year, we, we, we went through a study looking at all the, 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 the variety of gifts, the absolute um, amazing um, breadth of gifts that God has given to the church so that all of us can serve God in a particular way. Not the same way, but in a particular way. God has given us that Holy Spirit so that we can serve God in gratitude for the salvation that, that he has bought with his own blood and so that we can have the privilege of working with God in order to share that salvation with others so that they can live in the same hope, have the same encouragement, have the same security that we enjoy now and in the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again want to thank you tonight for the power of the resurrection. We want to thank you that it's not just some nice, cozy concept. We thank you that it is a fact. It's a fact of history. It's a fact in, in the life of believers throughout history. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would, that you would help us to keep that hope to be a real, um, a genuine encouragement. We pray, Heavenly Father, that when we sometimes struggle with our, with our faith, um, when, um, when we look at the world round about us, that it would give us hope to know that you ultimately are in control of this world and how this world will come to an end. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would strengthen us with your Holy Spirit, that we would, out of love and appreciation and gratitude, seek to serve you with the gifts that you've given us, that you would help us in humility to be obedient to your Spirit and let him work and change and transform us, that you would enable us to, to take those opportunities that you give us to share with others about what you've done for us, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but because you have shown your love and your mercy and your grace to us. Help us, Heavenly Father, to say that just as you have done that for us, that there are friends, there are our families, there are our neighbors, that you want to share that and give that to as well. So, Heavenly Father, help us to serve you for as long as you um, give us on this earth. And as we were singing earlier on, help us, Heavenly Father, to serve you um, until either Christ comes or you call us home. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.